One of the things that John Ryan was well versed in was the facts. And I think that's a big difference. And, and you know, even when you have the facts on your side, that because you're involved in controversy, you are still vulnerable because there are people who are not going to like you and people who might even threaten your life. And so undertaking this kind of activism is not something one does lightly or just say, Robert, I'm going to go out and save the world. There's a theological element to this is you're not going out to save the world. You're going out to spread the gospel. Christ has already saved the world. Welcome to Can I Get a Witness, the podcast. This podcast is an audio companion to the book, Can I Get a Witness? 13 Peacemakers, Community Builders, and Agitators for Faith and Justice. I'm Shay Tuttle. In each episode of this podcast, I'll talk with one of our authors about the person they profiled for the book and about their writing process. Today I'm speaking with Heather A. Warren. Heather A. Warren is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Virginia and an Episcopal priest. She is the author of Theologians of a New World Order, Reinhold Niebuhr and the Christian Realists, 1920-1948, which was published by Oxford in 1997. For our book, Heather wrote on John A. Ryan. Thank you so much for talking to me about John Ryan. I'm excited to have a conversation. Pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you start out by giving a sort of brief sense of who John Ryan was and his significance, since I think a lot of folks maybe haven't heard of him before? Yes. John Ryan was a Catholic priest in the first half of the 20th century in the United States. He did most of his work in Washington, D.C., based at Catholic University and with the National Catholic Welfare Conference. He was an advocate for the living wage, for a living wage. He did a lot of work for, to help child laborers, really to make child labor not possible until after the age of 16. He was concerned about, really about the welfare of all people in the United States, especially those who were exploited by employers and industrialists. Mm -hmm. Great. So John Ryan, I'm pretty sure, is the person in our book who comes first in history. He lived 1869 to 1945. Right. That sound right. So why do you think his story belongs in this book alongside people, even, you know, Daniel Berrigan only died a couple of years ago. So why do you think John Ryan belongs in this lineup of witnesses? Compared to his contemporaries, he was cutting edge. He was right out there. He was public. He did what's not known a lot about him. He did a lot of public speaking around the nation to not only Catholic groups, but Protestant groups, secular groups about the need for labor, improved labor conditions, not well, chiefly wages, but it had to do with housing and what happened when you couldn't work anymore, what called old age pension, which eventually became Social Security. He 
was a, 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 a public figure. Also, he was Catholic, and he was being heard at a time when there was tremendous anti-Catholic sentiment in the United States. To be a, a Catholic, in, in really until about 1960 or until the early 1960s, after John F. Kennedy was elected, was really to be an outsider. And they were considered to be un-American because they were believed to be undemocratic, uh, because they had loyalty to a pope overseas to whom they were so it was believed they were supposed to do whatever the pope said, including voting a certain way. So there was this distrust of Catholics. But here was a Catholic uh, priest, no less, not just a lay person, but a priest who was in many ways out Americaning many Americans and working on behalf of Americans. He was also calling for the improvement of life for everybody. He was quite attuned to the miserable conditions that industrial workers and farmers were living because of the exploitation of the magnates who controlled these industries. I mean, and it was bad. People were in terrible conditions living in, uh, as I said in my essay, and this is true, two families living in in 10 by 8 rooms, I mean, or 10 by 16 at best, soot all inside because there was no other kind of heating other than coal, no hygiene. People would just use a bathroom in a pot and dump it out the window in an alley. And you can imagine what that was like at the end of a hall, by the way, because they had no windows. And it was really nasty. And people died horrible deaths. And and Ryan knew this. As a priest, he had been in these, you know, in homes. And he knew as having a, as a child, having grown up on a farm, knew the way that farmers were squeezed out of the profits that they had earned. And they were not living lavishly either. There was no, the agro-business at this time was not coming to the farmers. It was all going to the people who owned the railroads who were transporting the goods. So he was he was right there. He was there in the front lines. Wow. Yeah. So you write in your chapter about how Ryan's work became personal to you a few years ago. Could you read that excerpt from the beginning of your chapter about that? A few years ago, a crowd of college students, staff, and faculty gathered on the red brick terracing in front of Thomas Jefferson's Rotunda, the historic landmark of the University of Virginia. The blue skies and slight breeze on the early spring day belied the turmoil that had captured public attention when students launched a campaign for the university to pay its full-time wage laborers an hourly rate that would almost double the minimum wage. They called it a living wage. The people had gathered for a teach-in that featured faculty members who would talk about the history of labor exploitation in the United States, business ethics, and the poverty that the university's wage earners suffered because of their small minimum wage paychecks. The first speaker, a female professor of 20th century Southern history, talked about the history of unjust labor practices beginning with slavery and carrying up through Virginia's contemporary wage-depressing anti-unionism. The second faculty member, a man in his late 50s and a social justice advocate since his college days, taught about present-day poverty and the large numbers of full-time working poor, even in the university. Both faculty members seemed like likely experts for the rally. 
When I took the microphone as the third speaker, a puzzled quiet moved among the people. I imagine that I, as a religious studies professor and an ordained minister, seemed an unlikely expert to the gathered protesters. I imagine that they were asking themselves, how could such a person have anything to say about workers and wage labor? Two days earlier, when I agreed to speak, I had puzzled over the same question in anticipation of that very moment. In the 48 hours that I had to prepare, I combed my heart and mind and prayed that the Holy Spirit would give me words to say. I summoned the memories of the pastors, priests, and lay people of the late 19th and early 20th centuries who criticized so-called Christian industrialists for living by the law of supply and demand rather than the law of love. And I considered the witness of Father John Ryan, the Catholic priest who likely coined the phrase a living wage and who pressed tirelessly over 30 years for wage legislation and other measures that would lift workers out of their hard scrabble subsistence pay lives. When the day came, once the first two speakers had finished, I stepped up, took the microphone and began. The idea and effort to pay workers a living wage is not new. It is particularly not new to American Christians, though many have forgotten their recent past. I took a deep breath. In 1906, a Catholic priest named Father John Ryan wrote an influential book with the title, A Living Wage. I heard a murmur of surprise from the crowd. Father John Ryan defined a living wage as a wage that befits the dignity of a human being. Shouts of, yes, go on, go on, accompanied loud applause. Who knew that Christian teaching lay at the heart of living wage campaign? Who would have thought that a Catholic priest witness would have been so welcomed at this event? Thank you. I love that story. What do you think surprised them so much? I think they were surprised that there was any Christian leader, particularly a clergy person, who was actually speaking out and writing on behalf of laborers, people who were basically being cheated, if you will, by their employers. And they just didn't think that the, that the church particularly in the contemporary, in light of contemporary times, was present at all or even cared for people in such a condition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think that was equally surprising in John Ryan's time? Were people just as surprised? I do think they were surprised. And I know that they were offended, mm -hmm. <laughs> which I think is great. It's like, what? We can't just go on pretending this doesn't exist and pretending that we're pious and good people. And for some, as there is today, uh, wealth was a sign of being right in God's eyes, that they had lived a good life and their reward was, was wealth. And John Ryan and his Protestant contemporaries were challenging that and challenging that in the name of Christ. Hmm. So if, if these listeners to you a few years ago were so surprised. I suspect that most people who are working for a living wage or for some or related issues don't know about Ryan. What do you think if they did know that his story could offer to that movement now? If they knew about him and knew how tireless he worked for this, 
and that the church was behind him because he was drawing upon Catholic teaching that had come from the popes, particularly from Leo the Thirteenth in 1891, that they would see that that Christians were really, if you will, on their side, that they were not forgotten. And in doing so, they would have the sense that God had not forgotten them and was was working to improve their situation, but not just improve their situation, but really valued them as human beings made in God's own image. You write in your chapter some about Ryan's childhood, and you talk about that he was exposed to hard economic realities at the same time as he was receiving this deep Catholic formation. So can you reflect a little bit on how that combination prepared him to be the kind of priest that he was? I don't think we can underestimate that formation. I think in his situation, his faith, the teachings of his faith were immediate. That is, they had immediate application and they just weren't, they weren't divorced from his everyday life, from the life of his family, from the life of the fellowing farmers that were around his, his family, the, the, the other farms that were there, that this was a living reality and that faith and what we would call theology, how you reason and think about your living your faith based on biblical teaching, based what you've been based on what you've been taught, that they're real, that they have immediate application and importance for what it means to be a Christian. And he saw that and lived that. He didn't just see it. He wasn't just an observer. He saw how this was happening in his childhood. And from the publications that were coming in that had a basis in the church. He saw how this was happening. Yes, it was a, a more progressive element of the church, but that it was there and this is what it meant to be a Christian very early in his life. I think it had a very lasting influence. And then as he got older, since I was already woven into sort of the warp and woof of his life, he, when he got to be in high school and saw Ignatius Donnelly, who was a charismatic populist leader, speaking about these things and then eventually uh, elected uh, as a representative to, to the Minnesota legislature. Donnelly had been a Catholic. He left the church, but he still had that background. Said, yes, this, Ryan himself could say, yes, this is us and this is the way we should go and that at the heart of all of this is our Christian faith. And that was with him. And I think just was with him all his life. And it, it really, if you will, if you would think of it as, as the hub, like a wheel, everything revolved around that hub. Mm-hmm. Was it high school when he was listening to Donnelly? Yes, it was. Yeah. And that's when his friends started calling him Senator. Is yes, right? it was. Cause he liked to go I to he, after school. He would, he would actually take a, like a trolley, something like that, a trolley to the the state capitol so he could go hear Donnelly speak on the capitol floor. And he would go so often that his his uh, his his high school mates started just referring to, to Ryan himself as senator, which I think is just brilliant. That's so funny. <laughs> yeah, that's great. It was in him very early, huh? Yeah, and I think one of the neat things is that Ryan figured out how he could have that kind of influence, that political kind of influence, but without having to be an elected official. And this is a a time in American politics where 
we're really growing in terms of uh, lobbying and sort of the bureaucratic state. And, and, and Ryan was part of this. Uh, and he was smart to figure out how all of this is done and that you you didn't either have to be a lawyer or a an elected official to be able to effect significant change on behalf of your people. And I think in that way, it's quite consistent with his vocation as a priest. I mean, he was caring for his people. Yes, it was not a distinct parish within particular boundaries, but I think he had a wider sense of what church is. And so he went for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you. there's this part in your piece that I really love. You write that Ryan believed that a priest's call was to correct exploitative social systems. And you have this quote from him saying, where should the priest be if not in the midst of this movement, restraining the destructionist, encouraging the true reformer, and applying the ethics of the gospel everywhere? And then this part where you say the priest must be, or he says, the priest must be able and anxious to point out what in the present system is wrong. And reading that, I just think, you know, it's easy for me to imagine this kind of priest causing some trouble in churches now. <laughs> At least many of the churches I've been to don't really want you to call out the the things that are wrong in the present system. Did Ryan get into trouble? He did get into trouble. And, there's, and I'm saying that with some glee because I've often thought that, oh, if you get into a bit of trouble, it means you're succeeding uh-huh. <laughs> or, or whatever success means. You're definitely getting your, your, your point across. He, he got into major trouble when he was working on a child labor amendment. The Congress had passed an amendment to the Constitution that had to go through the, the state um, ratification process, and it was to prohibit child labor under the age of 16. And Ryan went around the nation promoting this. And because a lot of laborers, industrial laborers, were Catholic immigrants, he went to Catholic communities to encourage laborers to contact their local people in the local legislatures to support this. And it was quite controversial in some Catholic communities, particularly, as I mentioned in the essay, with uh, in the Boston, the Massachusetts area, because a lot of child labor happened in those factories. And the archbishop there just couldn't stand Ryan. And he thought he was meddling outside of the diocese where he was. And particularly Catholics didn't, many Catholics did not like the labor, child labor amendment because they thought it was the way that the government was interfering in family life. That if a family wanted their child to go to work in the factory before 16, that was their business. And Catholic Church was all about supporting families. And for many families on, to, the, to take their side, they needed their children to work to be able to eat and have a place to live. So it was controversial. And Ryan goes up to Boston to promote support for the labor amendment. And the archbishop up there is mad as a wet hen and says all kinds of nasty things about him and wants his wants. Ryan's own bishop to say, no, you can't go there, da-da. Well, Ryan's bishop is supporting Ryan, so he doesn't reply. And finally, after it's all over, 
Brian eventually goes back to Washington, D.C., where he's based at that time. But the, the archbishop in Boston says, basically, as long as I'm alive, you're never coming back to Massachusetts. You're not allowed to set foot here. I mean, that's really strong stuff. Yeah. Technically, when a, a priest comes to do anything in another diocese, he's supposed to get the permission not only of his bishop, but also of the, the bishop into whose diocese he's going, if he's doing anything that could be considered a, a religious function. This was also an issue for priests, for Catholic priests during the civil rights era. And what, what they would do is they would just go down to wherever the action was. Selma was a hot spot for this. And they would go and they would basically ignore the local bishop and show up anyway. And so in many ways, you could see what Ryan was doing with his advocacy of the child labor amendment as a forerunner for what the priests were doing during the civil rights movement. So I'd like to ask you to read the excerpt about Ryan's radio broadcast in 1936, but it may require a little bit of setup. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happening just before this broadcast and then and then read that section? Oh, yes. For the election, the general election and the presidential election of 1936, the Democratic Party, through its polls, was fearing that Roosevelt might be defeated. Bear in mind that things are getting pretty tense internationally. We're still in the pit of the Depression. We're just starting to come out of it, just starting to come out of it. And a another priest, Father Charles Coughlin, is making quite a splash through the media, the media of the radio, which was very much like the internet or television today. Coughlin was a charismatic speaker, and he had quite a following. He was based in Detroit. He had his regular broadcasts, and he was virulently anti-Roosevelt. He'd started a third party with his own picked candidate, and the Democratic Party was afraid that Coughlin would siphon votes away from from Roosevelt, would siphon Catholic votes away from Roosevelt and contribute to a, a defeat of Roosevelt and other Democratic um, candidates. So the party approached Ryan, uh, who, couldn't, who had no patience and really couldn't stand Coughlin, to speak on the airwaves, and that's what he did. On October 8, 1936, Ryan positioned himself behind a large radio microphone for a national broadcast. Ostensibly intending to defend FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, from alleged charges of communism, he sounded the critical Catholic voice against Coughlin. Positioning himself as a priest who knew moral theology, he said that he was going to provide mainly, and these are his words, a discussion of certain political events in the light of moral law, that is, Catholic teaching. Nevertheless, he delivered a carefully crafted speech that championed Roosevelt. With a touch of humor, he appealed to the eighth of the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt not lie, to rebut Coughlin's charge that FDR was a communist. Ryan argued that FDR was not an atheist, as communists were, pointing out that before FDR went to the Capitol for his inauguration in 1933, 
he and his family went to worship at the church across Lafayette Park from the White House. Ryan defended New Deal legislation from the charge of communistic tendencies by arguing that it accorded with papal teaching. The Labor Disputes Act, he explained, simply makes effective the right of labor to organize, a right which was strongly proclaimed by both Pope Leo XIII and Pope Pius XI. Ryan asserted that far from opening America to communist influence, FDR's presidency had prevented its spread. Ryan explicitly addressed the last part of his speech to Catholic laborers and criticized Coughlin's policies on economic and Catholic moral grounds. On the basis of his own expertise, he argued, Father Coughlin's explanation of our economic maladies is at least 50% wrong. Moreover, Father Coughlin's monetary theories and proposals find no support in the encyclicals. Ryan concluded the speech in an unambiguously partisan way. I urge you to use every effort at your command among your relatives, friends, and acquaintances in support of Franklin D. Roosevelt. Yeah, so you write about, and you, you spoke about this earlier too, about how Ryan even went so far as to write and promote legislation. And you have this great line, well, what was a Catholic priest doing writing a bill and promoting it in the halls of a state capitol? But Ryan might have responded, what is a priest good for, if not witnessing to the inescapable connection? Yeah, physical thriving and spiritual thriving. So you're a priest, and you clearly care about social and political issues that affect people. How do you see this kind of tension between these you know, the theological issues and the, the social issues playing out day to day for your colleagues and even in your own life, if you're willing to reflect on that. One of the things that I have not heard articulated by uh, the loudest voices, shall we say, today, um, I'll just call out some names. I, also, I haven't heard how Franklin Graham has articulated how his people are suffering and in light of facts particularly in terms of jobs and jobs going overseas and things like that, or jobs being taken by immigrants. The facts just don't support that. One of the things that John Ryan was well-versed in was the facts. And I think that's a big difference. And, and you know, even when you have the facts on your side, that because you're involved in controversy, you are still vulnerable because there are people who are not going to like you and people who might even threaten your life. So I, I think that that's part of it. And so undertaking this kind of uh, activism is not something one does lightly or just say, Robert, I'm going to go out and save the world. There's a theological element to this is you're not going out to save the world. You're going out to spread the gospel. Christ has already saved the world. And when, when you're out there with a collar on, you also know you're a target. Um, I think it's different if you're in a business suit, <laughs> if you're a man in a business suit. Um, that's a, a symbol of, of power, and you don't attack power that already exists. It, people tend to attack those who are powerless because there's less risk in it. And I do think that when John Ryan was out there with his collar on, he was a Catholic. He was a, a person that people didn't like. Yes, he was more comfortable in Catholic circles, but he was also saying things that Catholics weren't thinking about. And uh, quite a few Catholics didn't like him to say. 
he was, if you will, loving his people as, as, Christ, love, as Christ loves us. I think for anyone who, who, who celebrates communion, who celebrates the Eucharist, that, uh, just speaking from personal experience, that when I'm celebrating, there, there's a similarity there. You're in a similar position. So there's a sacramental connection. And that is when you're celebrating communion, the Eucharist, you have to be vulnerable to the way that God is moving in you at that time and, and be aware that it's not you who's doing this. Okay. Yes, you're willing and you're part of it, but you have to be really open to what is happening at that time. And it's really, and when you're open like that, you're absolutely open to all your people who are gathered there too. And it's something that's really beautiful because you see people differently. You can't have your defenses there because if you're going to be fully open to God and that kind of presence and turn yourself entirely over, I mean, I'm thinking, I'm not saying, oh, I'm Christ on the cross, but that it's that kind of vulnerability, which is also really beautiful because it makes you so open to other people. And that's also the case, I find, when I'm engaged in standing out in public, whether it's at Pride or at a teach-in, uh, something like that. It's a very similar kind of vulnerability and that you hope that it's not just because of what you're saying, but you, it, it's be, you pray that God will take what you're saying, even if it's not particularly eloquent at the time, and use it to, to move hearts and minds so that we will all be we will all be better. It's it really is so that we can all rise together. Hmm. Heather, that's beautiful. Thank you. It's it's I mean it, yeah. Yeah, it's such a great parallel. I never would have thought about it. It's really it's really great. It is. And I don't think I don't think people ever talk about or or maybe they're not like me <laughs> in that way. <laughs> But I know in those moments, I'm, I'm aware of the vulnerability, and yet that's also a particular kind of vocational moment. It's all of a piece. Yeah. I'm going to have to think about that for a long time. So I want to ask you about the kind of current turmoil in the Catholic Church. I think about Ryan not only because he's Catholic, but because some of his work was on behalf of children and child labor. I'm wondering what you think the story of of John Ryan's life and work might have to contribute into that very difficult conversation that's happening around abuse in the Catholic Church now. I think he would be tremendously pained and outraged over what has what has been happening. The revelations that have come to light, including the cover-ups. Yes, he knew that the, the hierarchy was not perfect. Obviously, he saw conflict within the American hierarchy in his own time. So he knew that there was not, you know, peace, love, and granola among the bishops, and and that there were varying opinions, and that some were people he would like to spend a lot of time with, and some is who would definitely not like to spend a lot of time with him. But I do think that as a priest, he would have been particularly pained. He grew up in a large family. He had a lot of brothers and sisters. And he was quite concerned about the family. And that means children and children's safety and welfare and their ability to uh, grow into adults with 
as little harm as possible growing into adulthood. That's why he worked so hard to have children not enter the labor force until they were 16. He wanted them to have a chance to get an education to not suffer harm. And sadly, what we're seeing is that within the household of faith, there has been tremendous harm. I also know that the kind of education that he received, the formation he received in his home and in his seminary put tremendous emphasis on the discipline that it takes to be a priest. How do you think John Ryan is a witness that we need now? Oh, I I think he's a a person who says, keep at it. The more you learn about trying to get uh, legislation passed, and and I think he's a witness to the power of legislation, that um, for legislation to take effect, um, you have to keep at it and how to mobilize people and to keep speaking truth to power, because that's what he was doing with all his essays, with all of his speaking. He was doing that. And I think that's, we're still called to do that. Whether we're wearing collars or not wearing collars, it's important to speak truth to power and work for honoring and maintaining uh, the dignity of each human per- each human being. Yeah. And I think for John Ryan, I mean, he was he was focused on labor. Okay, that was his thing. But for us today, I think it applies to other aspects of life. I think we're particularly aware of race and welcoming the stranger, and whether it's the the immigrant or the refugee, that uh, these are you know people made in the image of God, people who have dignity, God given dignity. Mm-hmm. How do you think? You have been changed by spending so much time with John Ryan. (laughs) Oh, he he emboldens me. And I was happy to spend time uh, with some economic thought, some disciplined economic thought as well. And it's made me think about our current economic situation, about neoliberalism, well, which is increasingly or has been increasingly without regulation become a a laissez-faire capitalism revisited. And I I think he keeps reminding me that it all comes back to to God. And it's, it's not about me. It's about God and neighbor. Well, thank you. It's been so much fun to talk and I really appreciate your insights and your willingness to share them. So thanks very much. All right. Well, thank you. Can I Get a Witness? The podcast is a production of the Project on Lived Theology at the University of Virginia, a research initiative whose mission is to study the social consequences of theological ideas for the sake of a more just and compassionate world. To learn more about lived theology, visit livedtheology.org or find us on social media. This podcast is produced, edited, and engineered by Jessica Seibert, and written, edited, and hosted by me, Shay Tuttle. Original music is by Drew Wilson. Special thanks to project director Charles Marsh. The book, Can I Get a Witness? 13 Peacemakers, Community Builders, and Agitators for Faith and Justice is edited by Charles Marsh, Shay Tuttle, and Daniel P. Rhodes. It's published by Urban's Publishing Company and is available now.